Cynthia Dillon. With me in the studio this morning is Matthew Gagnon, Chief Executive Officer of the Maine Heritage Policy Center and radio host for the WGA and Morning News with Ken and Matt. Welcome, Matt Gagnon. It's nice to uh, be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, my pleasure. Now, according to Wikipedia, you were born in Walnut Creek, California, but grew up in Hamden, Maine. My first question is, what brought your family to Hamden, Maine? That's a good question. <laughs> Always good to start off with Wikipedia, right? Um, well, so my family actually is um, is originally from Maine. My, my father uh, grew up in Maine, and my family's been here since before Maine was a state. So it's, it's a very Maine-centric family. My father was in the military, though, and went out west um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of in his 20s and 30s and settled out there for a while. He became a banker around the San Francisco area. And I was born out there, but he was uh, offered an opportunity to come back to Maine um, to work at a bank when I was, I think, three, two or three years old. And so he was very much uh, happy to take that. And we kind of came back at that point. And so I grew up essentially as though I was born in Maine, but mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't, unfortunately. So. And you studied at the University of Maine. I noted, I think it was the five-year plan, but let's forget about that. <laughs> the first job on LinkedIn, um, it shows that you, in 2006, you were hired as an intelligence analyst in Maryland. My question is, what was your very first job out of college, and how did you get the intelligence analyst gig? That's actually a pretty interesting story. I had a friend who I had uh, I had made in college who had gone down there a couple years prior. Um, he was a, he was one year older than me, so I think he graduated in two thousand three, and he had been working at a place called iJet Intelligent Risk Systems, which is a um, organization that works with a lot of um, nonprofits, a lot of consultancies like a Booz Allen Hamilton, Accenture, those types of people that have a lot of expatriates and travelers that are going across the globe, and they need to basically kind of have a an idea of where they're going and what's happening there like if you're going to turkey what should i care about when i go to turkey if i'm on the train you know in the airport what should i do about taxis you know is there a unrest there is you know is there a riot happening in paris you know all that kind of stuff and so uh he really enjoyed the job and he thought i had a sort of i had taken a lot of international affairs uh, courses and whatnot as part of uh, part of my political science background and so i had an interest in that kind of stuff and thought that uh there was an opening and he called me he's like hey you want to come down and uh, I'm the kind of person that says yes to that kind of stuff a lot so I did and and that was kind of the beginning of my little DC career so that is interesting and I noted that you also worked as the digital director no excuse me the director of digital strategy for the Republican Governors Association from 2012 to 2014 and during that time you were identified by Business Insider as one of the 50 hottest people in online politics. Oh my God, so my is that first, on there somewhere? <laughs> my first question is, what happened? No, just uh, No, that's a good question, actually. <laughs> that is. No, yeah. but actually, the real question is, you had success in that position. Um, North Carolina flipped the governor's mansion, and you were successful in blocking the recall election of Scott Walker in Wisconsin. In Maine, there is currently no recall mechanism. True. So given your experience with Wisconsin, when it comes to the governor, do you think there should be a recall provision in Maine's constitution or in statutory framework? That's actually a, a, a fairly interesting question because I don't actually think there should be. And it's not because of my experience with Walker. I mean, you know, whether he should have been recalled or not is kind of irrelevant to the question. To me, the pr- political process today is so 
systemically broken and it's so it's i mean beyond what it has been in the past it's been it's so centered around like conflict and trying to one up each other in taking each other's people out and you know attacking people and bringing them down and all that kind of stuff recalls are a tool in the toolbox for people to basically mess with their political enemies and i think personally the recall provision is the next election if there's a question of sort of unethical behavior and somebody breaking laws and that kind of thing, there are impeachment procedures that are in places like Wisconsin and other states that I think are the real reason that you should be removed from office and the real process that should be taken to take you out of office if that kind of thing's happened. But you are undertaking a policy that I don't like is not to me something that really should be, um, uh, you know, having some sort of tool like that used to oust somebody from office. If you don't like that, then win the next election. And if you're not winning the elections, then... You You don't have good ideas. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, (laughs) really. Your current job is the chief executive officer of the Maine Heritage Policy Center, which is, I think, fairly described as a conservative think tank or Mm -hmm. free market think tank. Yeah, we always describe it as free market because we – butt heads with conservatives frequently, actually, believe it or not. But uh, but we're concerned with limited government, free enterprise, that type of thing. Okay. And in addition, you are a popular radio host on the WGAN Morning News Show. My question revolves around, it, in your mind, is there a conflict of interest in your two um, roles, the chief executive officer of a free market think mm-hmm. tank and a news director, or excuse me, a news announcer? I don't think so because the news, uh, the news position, you know, the radio show that you're you're mentioning, it's it's intended to be and is, in my opinion, a it's not a news delivery operation. It's not like it's a NPR news broadcast or anything like that. It's supposed to be the opinion takes of uh, reactions to the news of the day. So event happens, you know, Iranian strike on a on a plane or the American response uh, to, you know, the the um, um, embassy being stormed, all that kind of stuff. You know, it, these are news items in which we're being updated about, of course. But the the hosts of the show are expected to sort of give perspective and debate and, con- you know, contrast back and forth their ideas about what that means for the public. Uh, so that's very opinion centric. And as long as you're not getting into, like, straight advocacy for candidates and that type of thing, I don't really think it has anything to do with um, sort of the other stuff I do. Do you think then, for instance, that the CEO of Planned Parenthood could serve as a radio host of a morning news show? Yeah, sure. I don't don't see any reason why they wouldn't. Okay. Now let's talk about the two elephants in the room. The first is the Republican mantra of being fiscally conservative and falling lockstep behind President Trump's budget that grew the deficit a whopping 26% to about a trillion dollars after he promised to eliminate the federal debt within eight years. So the first question is, how do you reconcile the spending and deficits of the Trump administration and fiscal conservatism? How much time do we have? <laughs> I mean, it's it, that's a very complex a, a question, and there's a couple issues that I have with it. Um, the first is that I do not primarily identify myself as a Republican. I happen to be one. I am registered as a Republican. Um, but my particularly my role with MHPC and whatnot, it is very sort of policy-driven. So I concern myself a great deal more with, like, what actual policies are being implemented and what happens and the results of them, more so than the partisan leanings of anything. I happen to be rather disgusted with that budget. So I, you know, I don't really feel terribly guilty about calling it out. I, I do it pretty frequently on the radio show. That's an obscene amount of spending, and it doesn't even remotely reflect conservative values at all. Um, I understand the political realities of why they were done, but that's that's not something that I would have any interest in, in really being all that excited about, you know, that budget. Now, that said... 
I, I do want to at least put in a little bit of a pitch for the fact that the American political system is a, is a real reason why that budget is crafted that way. You know, if you look in Great Britain, for instance, um, I actually just got finished reading uh, uh, David Cameron's memoir, and he was talking about sort of the things that they had done to try to control de- spending and, and deficit spending specifically in the United Kingdom when he took over in 2010 as prime minister. And they're able to do that. I mean, if you look at the deficit today as it compares to when they took office, it has gone down every single year, essentially, to a point where they're kind of getting close to being able to get back into balance. And it's because they have a unicameral legislature with a prime minister who's in charge of a party that's in control of that parliament. Well, and they can have an election in, you know, mm -hmm. (laughs) three months. (laughs) Absolutely. But once you have the election, you're in charge. There's no filibustering. There's none of that stuff exists. There's no bicameral legislature where one house wants to do one thing and the other doesn't want to do it. So that sort of uh, system that we have right now is sort of incentivized to stop a lot of big change happening. And if you want to really curtail government spending and have a smaller budget, you have to make some pretty big changes. Like there's a lot of things you got to do and you're not going to get the Democratic House to agree to that while you're trying to do other things. It's it's just not really terribly possible. I wish that it was, but it's there's reasons. There's reasons. The second elephant in the room is evangelical support of Donald Trump who is hardly a pillar of moral leadership, in my view, given his numerous affairs, previous support of abortion, gambling, and some would say financial shenanigans. My first question is somewhat personal. Are you an evangelical Christian? I am a Catholic. Do you think it's hypocritical, or would you comment on the evangelical um, support of Donald Trump? What do you believe is the cause of it? That's another one that could take us a really long time to dive into because political questions like that, um, you know, are really complex. I mean, there's there's obviously the the conflict between a person's sort of personal uh, personal life and the reflection of what they you know are and do and the support that they get, you know, there's, there's a connect and sometimes disconnect between those things. And that, that, that crosses a lot of partisan boundaries. It goes to Democrats as well. Um, But then there's also sort of the, what do I want this leader to do in the country question? And I think that's the real core of your answer for you. If you, if you are asking why somebody who's had multiple wives and has had uh, a few dalliances publicly (laughs) that are uh, less than morally upright, and why people who are evangelical, evangelical Christians support somebody like that. I think the real end result is, is, a, is a result of the policies that he has promised that the, he's going to undertake as president of the United States and what he's chosen to do as president and the things that he's, he's undertaking. I think the evangelical community specifically um, is very happy with actually a great deal of what he's done as president. And as a result, they feel a great deal more comfortable with him as president, flawed as he may be, than if they had a Democratic control being openly hostile to kind of what their agendas are. Do you think it's the abortion issue that primarily drives? Actually, no. I, I, that's part of it. That's definitely part. There's no question that's part of it. But I think it's a great deal deeper than that. Um, you know, there's the classic list of issues, you know, the prayers in schools and, you know, sort of supportive. Uh, Saying uh, Merry Christmas. Well, yeah, I mean, little, <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up because I think that a great deal of it is cultural, just, you know, attitudinal. You know, th- that kind of thing is something that a lot of particularly evangelical evangelical Christians care deeply about, about sort of like the loss of the sort of Christian heritage of the nation and whatnot. And somebody who who is talking about it and actually has a different perspective that more matches them is something that's important to them. But beyond that, you've got you've got uh, a different perspective in the administration on the role of the government as it relates to religious entities and particularly things like what we saw with Obama in office with, you know, the coverage and the mandates for birth control pills 
rules and everything else. Like just little stuff like that collects in many issues. And, and it tells an evangelical voter, this person is far more aligned with my values and what I care about, even though he might not be the quintessential example of an upright, morally person. Well, this is a good segue into my next question. Um, the Declaration of Fundamental Expectations of the Citizens of Maine, that is um, on the Maine Heritage Policy website, says, um, we believe that the civic health and material prospects of our state and nation are radically degraded and at risk. Is that your belief? Yeah, I think the entire declaration that you're referring to on our um, on our website is something that we worked on for a great deal of time, basically as a as a way of expressing to the general public the kind of beliefs and thoughts of our organization about the state of how things are in the state of Maine and the country in general. So I I would basically say that I support everything that's in that. Okay, so civic health and material prospects of our state and nation radically degraded at risk. I, I'm curious to know why you believe that and what caused, but also is there um, is there trouble in your um, messaging now that you have Donald Trump in the White House, you know, touting the biggest economic expansion and record-breaking stock market returns and prosperity, and on the other hand, trying to make the case that perhaps Janet Mills and life in Maine isn't so good under a Democrat. So. Hmm. Um, your turn. Yeah, go, right? Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's interesting because the government and what the government does and this sort of our state of being right now, I know that people are obsessed with Donald Trump as president of the United States on both sides, you know, both support and oppose. Um, but the government is about so much more than an individual person. I mean, as you just correctly pointed out, I mean, federalism sort of says to us that we have multiple layers of government, including state governments and town governments, which no one ever talks about um, as well, that sort of have a real influence on our lives and they really have an impact on us. Um, that statement is, is meant to be incredibly general about sort of the state of things in both civic life and government right now. And I think civic life, very few people would really disagree with, I think, that position that there's there's a real tension today in, in American society about our civic life and how we relate to each other and how people talk to each other. And I mean, just the ability of having a nice conversation like this is very rare today. Whereas I don't think it used to be. I mean, there's always conflict, but, but a, a sort of civic rational approach to discussions of issues is quickly fading away. According to most people that I talk to. What do you think the cause of that is? Deep, changes in society over time. Specifically, I think the rise of the information age is a really big part of that. You know, before it was difficult to organize people together. You know, and if you have a sort of a fringe ideology that, you know, you only thought a couple people really held before, you can now see with the advent of the internet and social media that there's a great deal more people that have it and they can get together and they can sort of use the force of their political, uh, you know, uh, will in a lot of and ways they that they didn't anonymous. used to be able to. I and think, they can be anonymous. I think yeah. that's a big driver of it. Well, and the other thing is just the, the the visual disconnect of people. I mean, you know, when you're talking to people about political issues today, I would say nine times out of ten, you're posting on somebody's comment page on their Facebook page. After two or glasses tweeting. of wine and yeah. you're tired. And, you know, I'm not sitting down with <laughs> Cynthia Dill and looking her in the face and seeing kind of like the disappointment in her face as I say something that she really, you know, offends her or upsets her and vice versa. And, and I think that human-to-human contact is being increasingly lost in society today. And as you lose more humanity, in the political system. I think you're losing a lot more um, of that civic life that we sort of had thrived on in the past and was so important to the, I think, health of our democracy. And that's a real shame, but I think that eventually we'll figure it all out. It's just, you know, right now we're living through a big a big wave of transition as it relates to sort of how we deal with each other in this new information age. 
I, as an aside, I sense that the tone of political discourse in Maine is somewhat different now under the Mills administration as opposed to under the LePage administration. Is that your experience and perspective as well, or do you not really see much of a difference? Well, the tone is different under every leader. Um, you know, the, the tone in um, Massachusetts right now under Charlie Baker, who is a Republican, is unbelievably genial and positive, and nobody's really fighting with anyone. Because he's a good Republican. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you and I, I I'm <laughs> yeah. trying very hard not to debate you on these things, but <laughs> the 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 reality is that that there is a style of leadership that certain people have. Jerry Brown's a good example in California who's a bit pugnacious himself, right? And not quite the same as LePage. But, you know, it's not it's not a strictly partisan thing. There's a number of Democrats that are very confrontational and whatnot. Well, and, Harry Reid comes to mind. Yeah, exactly. That's that's an excellent example. And, and you know, it's just a it's just the way that some leaders are. And if you're be, if you're a supporter of those leaders, you know, for instance, I do like a great deal of what LePage did. And one of the things that you'll hear from supporters of those politicians frequently is that the sort of niceties and the pleasant sort of uh, support of the status quo and the not acting and the not making noise and the not picking fights and all that stuff has led us to a place that is unhealthy in our society in terms of the amount of money we're spending and what we're doing and all those types of things. And oftentimes it is required that sometimes there's somebody that knocks over a couple tables and does something about it. You can disagree with that, but that's the basic reason why a lot of those people are very supportive of that. Now, why, switching gears... Why did you only work for Susan Collins for eight months? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I was working at the National Republican Senatorial Committee in 2010. And that election cycle, that was the, if you remember, the Tea Party wave election. And at the end, if you know anything about political committees in Washington, at the end of that time, they basically staffed down for like a year and a half before they kind of ramped back up for the next one. So I found myself out of a job, more or less, um, and looking to my next thing. And I'd always wanted to work on the Hill. And Senator Collins' office was nice enough to, to bring me on board and whatnot. Um, actually, I ended up getting an offer from um, my old boss, believe it or not. If you look at my resume, I worked at New Media Strategies twice. Right. I and, was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, I'm very good friends with the the founder, the CEO of New Media Strategies, Pete Snyder, uh, who is a really unbelievable entrepreneur. And he needed someone to come back and manage an awful lot of the sort of clients that they had in the political space, the public affairs space. And he made, made me a great offer, you know, to, to come back over there. And I was only too happy to do it and join him kind of in that little endeavor. And that kind of bled into the RGA thing as well. You know, jobs in Washington are very often very temporary. You know, you, you are there for a matter of months, sometimes, you know, a year, sometimes here and there. And, I, you know, it's tough to explain to my uh, parents sometimes, you know, like, why do you have a different job every year I talk to you? <laughs> but it's kind of the nature of the beast when you work down there. Well, speaking of working for senators and in Washington, you gave the Conifer Best Use of Utensil Award to Senator Amy Klobuchar because she apparently, uh, when her staff did not remember to bring a fork with a salad on a plane trip... <laughs> took out a comb from her purse and ate the salad. My question to you is, would you eat a salad with a comb from Amy Klobuchar's purse? I don't think I would, unless it was a brand new comb out of the box. Um, I'm not sure I would eat a salad with a comb. I believe that Amy was probably trying to make a point to her staffer about the need for planning and whatnot. Uh, You know, it's funny because she has a reputation of being somewhat difficult uh, as a boss, like, you know, internally in the the Senate. And, uh, you know, uh, I have seen others that have had that similar reputation who really are just, they're just demanding people who want 
excellence in a lot of ways. I don't, I, I'm not saying that. Okay, I'm going to press that. you now, but so your eight months with Senator Collins was yeah. not because she was a difficult boss along no, not the lines she of Amy Klobuchar. She was incredibly okay. demanding. <laughs> and that's actually sort of what I'm getting at is that like I, it was harder to work for Senator Collins than basically anybody else I've had to work with in the past because she was, she's so detail oriented. She's so demanding. She wants you to be excellent at basically everything you do. So I had to, you know, you had to be sort of on your game at all times. And that's a very difficult thing to do. But in retrospect, that is a very good thing. I mean, it makes you as an employee your best as well. And I bet you that staffer that forgot the forks and spoons or whatever for the salad was a great deal more mindful of making sure that people are prepared when they go yeah, into that'll their never next, happen it'll again. never happen again. And so I have a little bit of sympathy for Amy Klobuchar, actually. Who do you think is harder to work for, Amy Klobuchar or Donald Trump? Well, I have several friends that have worked for Donald Trump. And, you know, here's one thing I'll message I will leave everyone with who's, who might be listening to this. The caricature of who you see on TV, left, right, or center, is very often very different than the reality of the human being that you actually would meet if you worked with them or, you know, in any. You know, I heard from Democrats all the time how pleasant it actually was to sometimes work with LePage and how smart he was and ask questions. And you used to hear that about George W. Bush a lot. And uh, you heard that from Paul Ryan and whatnot about Obama a lot. And everybody, you know, even Newt Gingrich liked working with Bill Clinton and thought he was kind of a, you know, fun guy to work with. And, you know, there's really not a lot of conflict I love working with Republicans. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's, if you really actually have that interaction, sometimes you realize that what you see on the news is not necessarily all that great. So the people I know who have worked for him have, said that it's a wonderful environment and that they, they like it. So I think they're probably both fine to work for at the end of the day. Now, um, almost done. What time do you get up in the morning? Usually about 4.15. And um, you are a Renaissance man, multi-talented, and played jazz music. I did. So tell me, yeah. what instrument do you play or instruments, and who's your favorite jazz musicians? Mm, I like Chris Boddy quite a bit. He's uh, he's plays trumpet and uh, he has, I think, a, just a beautiful tone and he plays a lot of uh, the type of jazz that I listen to. So I think that it's uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic uh, musician as well as uh, obviously a lot of the greats that you might think of, you know, in sort of the jazz genre. There's, there's a great deal of those folks that I have on my Spotify playlist a lot. Uh, as for the instruments I play, though, I, I grew up playing trumpet in, um, in all the way through high school and then into college a little bit. And uh, it's a little habit I've passed on to my son, who's now old enough to be playing an instrument. So he's 13 next month, and he's been playing trumpet for a few years. And I also learned to play guitar after I broke my back. I had to, I had to find a hobby of some kind to keep my mind occupied and whatnot. And I ended up buying myself guitar lessons um, about five years ago or so. So I'm not very good at the guitar, but I can play it. That's great. Well, Matt Gagnon, thank you so much for joining the program. You bet. Glad to be here. Oh, Matt, before I let you go, one more question. Uh, are you a fan of Kirk Minahan? <laughs> yes, I am. I actually used to get in my car on my way out of my my radio gig um, at 9 o'clock, and his show used to be all the way till 10 o'clock, so I would listen to, like, the last hour of it, uh, him and Callahan, yeah, definitely. And then, of course, he's moved over to Barstool now, so. Are you planning on going to the ice fishing event in Madawaska <laughs> in February? I hadn't put it on my calendar yet, but it is. I am watching it with great interest. And I did see that you have uh, been interacting with Mr. Minahan. <laughs> yeah. Yourself well, there. I think my my role in that show is short-lived, but um, it's been fun. All right. Well, Matt Gannon, thanks again. You bet.